So today, we are wrapping up our series that we've entitled Seven, looking at Jesus communicating seven letters to seven real churches about 2,000 years ago. But while culture and time has changed a lot of things, the human experience is pretty much the same. And today, we're going to wrap up this series by looking at overcoming my selfie sufficiency. Is it possible for people to say that they're good when they are not good? Well, let me show you by way of a Super Bowl commercial a couple of years ago that that is a very possible thing. We might say we're good, but we're really not. Check this out. I'm good. I'm good. the taste of Diet Cola. Until now, Pepsi Max, the first Diet Cola for men. Yeah, what is it about us where we'd be willing to say, I'm good, when it's obvious that we're not? And here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Jesus speaking to a church that says, we're good. I'm good. But Jesus says, not so much. And as we're often, you know, finding through these addresses to these seven churches, Jesus has some commendations, some things that he is affirming about. There's some challenges as well. And as always, when Jesus confronts us with something, he also gives us a direction in which we can go. And we're going to see that in this address to the church at Laodicea. And to the angel that can also be translated messenger of the church in Laodicea, right. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. There's always titles that surround who Jesus is. And the amen, isn't that kind of the magic word we put on the end of our prayers? The word amen literally can be translated, so be it. It is a word of certainty. And so it's saying the one who is certain, the one in whom we have confidence, the faithful and true witness, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because he is the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Another way to say that is the originator of God's creation, the one through whom all things were made. Who is this speaking? The emperor of the entire universe. And what is he going to say to a church in Laodicea? And here's what we've discovered along the way. That to understand what Jesus is saying, he sometimes uses some imagery that was very relevant to their context. And so it's good for us to understand the context because it helps us to better understand the imagery and what it means to us all these years later. The city of Laodicea. I had the opportunity to be on that site back in the 1990s. And you know what I saw back then was pretty much this. It's on a plateau. And it's pretty much a field with a bunch of rocks that are just strewn all over the place. Well, in 2002, there was an archaeologist who finally got permission to unearth this city. And once he excavated about four feet below the surface level, he discovered an incredible city called Laodicea. And mile after mile of this impressive set of ruins... Out of all the seven churches that we've looked at in the book of Revelation, Laodicea was by far the wealthiest. 
Why were they wealthy? Because they were at a crossroads of a couple trade routes, and so there were a lot of people coming and going. It was opportunity for entrepreneurs to do really well and to have a lot of business that just naturally came through this city. Um, they had two massive amphitheaters, um, and they put on a lot of programs there, and they would seat a combined 20,000 people, and they were filled on a regular basis. Another reason for their wealth is that they perfected growing black wool. And in the Roman Empire, a lot of the wool that was there was the white wool that we're very familiar with, but black was in high demand. They cracked the code on how it was able to get, you know, black wool onto sheep, and they got very, very wealthy from that. They also became a banking center. Like many of the other cities in the ancient world, they would mint their own coins. So the Roman Empire didn't just have a coin all by itself. Every city had one. And so Laodicea had their own coin. But they took it a step further and really began what we might call a banking industry. Right? To walk around on those trade routes was a pretty risky thing. And if you're carrying some gold coins around on you, it was possible that people would try to rob you and take that. And it was just a common experience. So a smart person said, what if we do this? We'll print certificates and we'll keep their gold coins in our bank. They can walk around with the certificates. And then when they come here, they can just give the certificate, show their stamp that proves that it's them, their seal, and then we'll give them their coins if they want them. But that way, when they're walking around, they're much safer. And of course, the banks were kind enough to do that for just a small service charge, um, which is something that's carried on um, for all these years. And so they became this banking center. It's kind of like the first version maybe of the checkbook, if you think about it. And Laodicea flourished and thrived. They also had a very famous medical school. And they developed an eye ointment that was also in high demand in the Roman Empire. And so they were viewed as sort of the healing place and the place where if you had that particular issue, that is where you needed to go. And the city was booming and thriving. And it was one of the major outposts in the Roman Empire. And then in AD 60, a massive earthquake leveled the entire city. So what is the city to do when it is destroyed and completely laid flat? Well, we discovered this last week with a city called Philadelphia that we looked at, that there are times the Roman Empire would step up and say, hey, we're going to give you some resources so you can get yourself back on your feet, so you can rebuild and restore everything that's been knocked down. You know what happened in Laodicea? This might have been the only time this happened in the Roman Empire, but the people from Laodicea on the other side after the earthquake said to the emperor in Rome, we don't need your help. We're good. We got it. And a couple examples of what was said there. Tacitus was a Roman senator. Laodicea rose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. One of the people in the city, I, Flaccus, restored these heated walkways at personal expense. And you can almost hear the pride in his statement, right? We don't need Rome. We got it. We're good. They had a city motto, and it was put onto their coins, and it would say this um, the early on in their existence, Laodicea, the sacred and autonomous. What's another word for autonomous? Independent. I got it. Don't need anything else. I'm good 
to go. Eventually, they dropped the phrase, the sacred, so it was just Laodicea, the autonomous. Any relevance about being independent, about being on our own, maybe even valuing that more than the sacred? In a time where we value so much everybody's independent uh, decisions, and Laodicea was that kind of place. And they got there because so much was so good that it led them to the place where they said, I'm good. We're good. We don't need the Roman Empire. We don't need the help of others. We got it. And so here's one of the things that Jesus says to them. For you say, I am rich. And there are a lot of ways in which that was literally true. I have prospered and I need nothing. I need nothing. Imagine getting to the place where you're so self-sufficient that you think, I don't need other people. I don't need the empire. Maybe I don't even need God. I got it going on. And so what is Jesus' critique of Laodicea? Spiritual self-sufficiency. And in the realm of faith, this is, I believe, the hidden danger the hidden danger that we don't often see because you look around and there are a lot of indicators that tell us that things are going really well, but there might be a reality that is somewhat different than what we perceive and what we see. You know, there's a hidden danger medically, and I happen to have that. Have you ever heard of high blood pressure being referred to as a silent killer? Because you don't have symptoms, it's genetic, and you know, I've in a family where that is just a reality. Take a pill to monitor that, and you know what? It kind of regulates it, and life is better on the other side of that. But unchecked, it can become very serious and become life-threatening. Well, there is a form of spiritual pride, of spiritual self-sufficiency that can lead us to the place where it chokes the spiritual life out of us. And how do we get there? because that's never what God's intention is for us. And I wonder if maybe it can happen this way, and I'm looking to my own life as one example of this, that you come at one moment to this realization, this light bulb moment, you know, I can't make myself right with God, but here's the incredible news. This is amazing grace that Jesus left heaven, came to this world, lived the perfect life that I could never live, sacrificed it on a cross, took all my sins upon him, made payment for it. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, supernaturally conquering sin and death, and I can be made right with God in him. And then what? And I think it's possible for people to say, okay, now I gotta get busy, and now it's up to me. And I wonder if that can even lead us down a road where after a while we think, I got it, I'm good. But after a while, we don't pray very much, and we don't participate in the purposes of God very much, and it seems like the spiritual passion has just oozed out of our lives. And we go through some motions, but the life just seems like it's ebbing away from us. And where did it go? And have we factored the supernatural out of our journey with God because we have become more spiritually self-sufficient and we say, I'm good. And Jesus is gonna show up in the life of a church and say, not so much. So how do we overcome 
self-sufficiency. And how do we get to the place where that spiritual passion in life is in our lives the way that God intends for it to be? Let me give you a couple things that come from Jesus' statement. First is to own the symptoms. Own the symptoms. What does that mean? Check out Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking. Now, Laodicea, here's the good news. You're mentioned in the Bible. Here's the bad news. You're making Jesus sick is basically what this is saying. And what is he talking about here? And why would he use this sort of vision, you know, of hot and cold? Well, Laodicea, for all of the things that were going well and right in the city, they had a big problem. And the big problem was water. They didn't have any of it. They're on this high plateau plain, and it was pretty much just dry. But on both sides of them, there were communities that had water, and one had hot water and the other had cold water. Hierapolis, on one side, had these springs that would bring up like hot tub kind of water, jacuzzi water. And so after long days of snowboarding at Snow Basin, they would go to Hierapolis, and, and, and that is medicinal, and it's relaxing, and it's good, right? On the other side was a city called Colossae. And Colossae had snow melt water that ran all year long. And cold water is refreshing and it is good. And so you got hot water, you got cold water, you got no water. So what is a city with no water to do? Well, they decided through this engineering, you know, that they were really good at carrying out back then that they were going to pipe in some water from both places. And so, scattered across that plain, there's a whole series of different pipes that look a whole lot like this. And you can see inside of those pipes, there is some residue from the minerals and the deposits inside the water because the water softener had not yet been invented. And we know what all of that is like here. Well, they had that issue there, but here is what Jesus is saying in being either hot or cold. Both of those are really good and really helpful but lukewarm is not good for anything. And the hot water that was piped in wasn't hot when it got there. The cold water that was piped in wasn't cold anymore. And he's using the analogy of water to talk about the spiritual life of people who lived in a city that looked great, but pretty much they said, we're good. And we don't need God either. They said to the emperor of the universe, the same thing that the city said to the emperor of Rome. We're good. Let me put it into Starbucks terms about this hot and cold. Starbucks sells a cappuccino, and that's hot, and it's really good. Starbucks also sells a frappuccino, and that's cold, and that's really good. You know what you won't find at Starbucks? A tepid chino. You know, just kind of room temperature, lukewarm. We'll let bacteria grow in there all day. It'll be awesome. You just come in and get that. Hot is good. Cold is good. Lukewarm, not so much. And that's what was happening in Laodicea. And I think this is where it leads us, that a passionless faith leads to a purposeless faith. And that is never God's intention for us. But people like me and people like us can wind up there. And Jesus comes with a diagnosis of the situation there 
that's pretty blunt. And he promises that he's going to tell us the truth, and the truth is our friend. But sometimes it's really hard to hear it. But the first thing we got to do is own it and to recognize that that is the reality of how things are. And then, how do we overcome it? We understand the disease. So here comes Jesus' reality check. For um, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Right? They're saying, we're good. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' words to people who are spiritually self-sufficient. And Jesus never leaves us in that space. He's always going to give us a direction that leads us forward. But before we find a way forward, we need to recognize that we are in need of a way forward. Because if we stay in the place where we say, you know what, I'm good. I don't need it. I got it going on. And this can be a reality for people who have walked, you know, with God for a long time. So I said, I grew up in church, been on a journey for a long time, and it'd be easy to say, you know what, pretty much heard it all, read it all, I got it. Don't really need much. That's a danger. But we could be new to this whole arena of faith, and I still think there's a danger there for us. We can say, look at all those people who have been walking for a long time, and they got a smugness and kind of a certain sense of, you know, God, having it all under control. I don't need them, and I don't need their church, and I don't need, you know, what belongs to them. And so anybody could wind up at a place like that. We're just kind of lukewarm, room temperature. And another way of saying lukewarm is room temperature, and I wonder if we wind up at that place of saying, you know, we talk like everybody else, and we act like everybody else, and we consume the same media as everybody else, and we wonder, where did the supernatural component of life together with God go? Could it have gone in the direction of being spiritually self-sufficient and saying, I don't need it, I'm good. Another way to overcome it is to take Jesus' cure and he's gonna give them a way forward. He's gonna call them away from the lukewarmness and he wants to invite them back into the life that is found together with him. So what does he say? He says, I counsel you, so let me be your sort of spiritual banker right now. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. I thought we were rich. Well, you're rich in one way, but we're talking about spiritual riches. And when Jesus was here in this world, what he talked about in the Gospels over and over again was this idea that when you take your time and your energies and your passion and your vision and you pour it into the purposes of God, you know what you're doing? You're storing up treasures in heaven. And that's true riches. And so these are people that Jesus is really pinpointing. You've, you've moved away from the purposes of God, the things that God sees in this world, the things that matter to him, the people that are hurting, the people who are in need of some help, the people that maybe need an arm around their shoulder. That's just kind of gone lukewarm. And so he's really calling people to invest in the things that matter to God and to see what God sees and to have our hearts beat for the things that God's heart beats for. And then he goes on, he says, and to also buy white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Remember they were wearing this black wool? 
Well, the color white in the book of Revelation shows up again and again with white robes that are put on and it is a symbol, an indicator of holiness, which is really found in intimacy, growing closer and closer to God. So involve yourself in the purposes of God, grow closer in your intimacy with God and pursue the holiness of God, not the self-righteousness, not the judgmentalism, but the righteousness of God. And he says one more thing, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And remember, they had the, the eye ointment that would cure people. And what Jesus is talking about here is that if you want to see light in a dark world, where do you go for that? You go to the one who sees it all. He's talking about wisdom, applying God's truth to the realities of life so that you may see see things the way that God sees them. So what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus' cure to invest in the purposes of God, intimacy with God, and the wisdom of God? And we go, great, that all sounds good. Now, how do you do that? How do we get there? And especially if we've been living at room temperature spiritually for a while, how do we get there? And here would be my fear if I were sitting where you were sitting to think, okay, here it comes. A really long list of things that I've got to do for the rest of my life and it's just going to sound so unrealistic. But here's what Jesus is going to say. There's one source that can lead us in that direction. One source. One opportunity that Jesus has placed before us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he's talking about the door of our hearts, right? I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is saying, how do we move in that direction? How do we move out of lukewarmness? How do we move back to the place where the supernatural component of God's life and vitality is breathed into our journey together with him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's a pretty famous picture of this, actually a painting. And it's uh, done by William Holman Hunt. And in this picture, you know, it's representing what Revelation 3.20 says. And if you look closely at some of the details there, you see that there's been some food left there to rot. There's some weeds growing up around the door. The hinges are rusted. And there's Jesus standing there, knocking. And you notice a detail about this door. There's no knob on the outside. This door can only be opened from the inside. Jesus is not going to come barging in. But he will come in to the people who open the door. And there's an opportunity for us to recognize, you know what, Jesus, maybe I've let some things get a little bit unkept, untended, just left alone. And Jesus patiently knocks. And whoever opens the door, what is the promise that he makes? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And eating 2,000 years ago was like a way of saying, we are close. We have a relationship. We're tight. And that's Jesus' invitation. 
to Laodicea. It's his invitation to us. And if we've been living in that tepid, lukewarm, room temperature, spiritual place, he's inviting us to open that door. So a question maybe that we can ask ourselves, Jesus is knocking, is the door of my heart open? And it could even be that maybe for the very first time, you know, Jesus has been knocking at that door and we've never opened that door. And that op opportunity is available as well. So I want to do something here this morning, and we don't do this very often, and I promise this is not going to get real creepy or scary, okay? You're like, uh-oh, what's coming? Here's the thing. Sometimes responding to something like this, we can do that inside of our own minds and our hearts. That's great. And I would never want to try to, you know, get you to do a response out of guilt or obligation or a sense of manipulation. But sometimes responding, physically even, just helps us to cement the decision that we're making. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And again, this is just totally up to you. In a minute, if you want to signify opening the door of your heart, of responding to God's call and saying, yeah, God, you know what? I want that spiritual vitality and life. And maybe I've let things get a little bit overgrown. And I've missed the purposes of God too much. And maybe I have neglected some of the intimacy with God. And I need more wisdom from God. If you want to do that, I'm going to ask you to stand up in a minute. And here's the reason why. I'm just going to pray for you. That's all that's going to happen. And so if that is you, why don't you go ahead and stand right now. And if maybe for the very first time you want to open the door of your heart to the God who came to your rescue, I'm going to ask you to stand and pray for you as well. Would you pray with me? So Lord Jesus, thank you for grace upon grace. It is your undeserved love that just reached down and rescued us. We could never do it ourselves. And God, would you forgive us? And I, Jesus, would be standing if I had been sitting. Would you forgive us for the times in which, okay, I got it. Got this figured out. Don't need help. Don't need other people. Maybe, even though we'd never say it out loud, don't even need you. And God, would you help us to rely on you just day by day? Help us to see the things that you see. Help us to be a part of the purposes of God, to see the, the ways in which you're working and you're moving and what you want to do in the lives of people around us all the time. Help us to see the person who needs an encouraging word or maybe needs a little help along the way. And God, would you help us to grow closer and closer to you? Would you help us every day to recognize that we need you? We need you every moment. And the only way that we grow closer in our intimacy with God is by turning to you on a regular basis. 
And God, would you help us to find wisdom? Our, our world, our day right now requires wisdom. And God, would you lead us in that direction? And may we know for sure, for certain, that the place to find that is in you rather than just looking to ourselves. And so God, may the door of our heart stay open and help us to know how good and how gracious and how patient you are with us every step of the way. And as we journey with you, God, help us to simply honor you in every way that we can. Thank you for every person who's standing, who might be standing in front of a computer. God, we just ask you to lead us closer and closer to you for your sake. So we ask it and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.